The following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes, taking a long look at life under the sun. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. So, uh, a little about me as we get started here. I have three children. I have a 13-year-old, an 11-year-old, and a 16-month-old. And uh, so there is a lot going on around my house, but one of the things that my older two boys are ramping up for and preparing for uh, is field day. How many of you remember field day from school? Yeah, right, three-legged race, uh, the, like, uh, you get in like the potato sack bag and race, and you've got the long jump and uh, the football toss or the frisbee toss or uh, whatever other thing the gym teacher could think of to do, uh, you would do on that day. And um, I remember field day well, and I, I remember those events, and uh, uh, getting my little blue ribbon at the end of the day, and uh, I'm a millennial, so everybody got a an award, right? We all got our particip- participation <laughs> awards at the at the end of it, and um, uh, but we really enjoyed field day. But the best thing about field day was always the last event being tug of war, right? It was it was the sixth grade sixth grade class versus the other sixth grade class, and the fifth grade class versus the other fifth graders, and then you'd kind of have the championship round and and see who could win that. And uh, if you're not familiar with tug of war, if maybe you've never heard of that. It's, you know, you basically have a long rope with a red bandana in the middle and sides are pulling back and forth against each other to get that flag uh, across a certain point in line and then you win. You're victorious and your class is the best. And uh, you, you always put kind of the scrawny little kid at the front of the rope and you put your biggest uh, child that's eaten the best at the back of the rope, right? And, and, and they pull and, and, they, and you just, it's this struggle and uh, it ends in either just tears or the b- most exciting thing you've ever seen in your life. And uh, actually, even living around here in the Quad, City, we, Quad Cities, we see this still take place. Grown men and women uh, do this over in Leclerc, I believe, right? They, they have tug fest, right, to see which side of the river is the strongest side of the river. And um, obviously, we're here on the Illinois side of the river today, so we know who typically wins that battle. And, but tug of war is just one of those fun things to watch and one of those fun things to be a part of. And uh, I'm excited to watch my boys, my older two, even to get to participate in that in the next couple of days at field day at their school. And uh, as you're out and about the next few days, as you're driving by those field days and teachers are out there sweating and uh, wanting to go home, just remember the fun and the joy that those children will experience. And the, the struggle, though, is we enjoyed tug of war as children, right? We enjoyed the battle. We enjoyed the fun of it. But as we've gotten older, we found ourselves in a bit of a different tug of war, right? Life is tug of war. There is constantly uh, a war going on within us and around us about who we will give allegiance to, who we will align with, who we uh, will believe is telling the truth, who we uh, believe is not telling the truth. And there is this constant pull back and forth on our life. Which side of the, the aisle will we find ourselves on. And, and we find this in every area of life, whether it be uh, politics or whether it be things going on in the office. There is always uh, a side pulling us to the right or to the left, so to speak, and, and where we will fall in the midst of that. And really, all of those battles, all of that tug of war can kind of be summed up into two, or really just one basic question. When we have those political tug of wars and when we have those office tug of wars or maybe classroom tug of wars, what we're really trying to do is we want to fix what's wrong in the world. And these two sides are pulling to figure out who's right at fixing what's wrong in the world. And those two sides look like this. There's one side that believes that the problems of man are external problems. 
right, that the problems that we face in our life and in our world are external problems that we can solve if we would just have better tools, if we had better schools, better education system, better medicine, better access to health care, better social programs, if we could just put the right pieces of the puzzle into place, we could cure all the things that are ailing man. And you see uh, our society and people all around us often go after those things. And, and to be honest with you this morning, those things in and of themselves are not bad things. We should push for better education. We should push for better schools. We should push for better social programs. But at the end of the day, we need to ask, is this the thing that will really fix the problems of man? Is this the thing that will really fix what's wrong in our world? And I would suggest to you that if our problems are merely external problems and we ourselves can fix them, then we do not have a need for God. If we have the ability inside of ourselves to muster up the strength, to muster up the tools, to muster up all the things, then we can handle everything on our own and there's no need for us to bother with God. But there's another side of the tug of war battle that says that our problems are internal. And I think most every one of us in the room this morning would, would uh, at least in our heads, agree with this side of it, that our problems, the problems of man, the problems of the world are internal problems, that we mess things up, that men and women are, are inherently broken, and therefore whatever we come up with in order to solve the world's problems is tainted by greed or politics or corruption of some kind. That when we do put these pieces of a puzzle together, or when we do get better tools in place, there is a brokenness to each and every one of us that spoils it, that makes it go awry. Some examples of this, just simple ones, is there are vaccines in the United States today that literally cost people hundreds of dollars, where you could go overseas and get that very same vaccine for pennies. Or the exact opposite of that is true, where we here in the States have access to health care galore all over the place. We cannot be denied health care, but if you were to go to a third world country, they don't have any access to health care. In fact, years ago, uh, my wife and I uh, had an opportunity to go to Cambodia, and, and as we were there, we went on a medical missions trip, and uh, we some, saw some of the uh, worst things men could do to other men in order to try to solve the ills of, of man. We saw uh, a woman who had been in a uh, motorcycle accident and her, her leg was totally scraped up and the best access to health care that young lady had was for them to take a, a roofing tar and put over her wound. We saw people uh, in a pond together. At one end of the pond, a gentleman was washing his motorcycle and at the other end of the pond, a, a young lady was taking a bath. There are things that go on that shouldn't go on. There are things that we see in our world that just aren't fair and, and, and greed and politics and corruption that is within every single one of us ruins the good things around us, ruins the good ideas we come up with. We haven't talked maybe much about this as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes, but the truth about man is that, is that we have bad DNA. Since the fall in the garden, we see uh, that, that life as it should have been is not the way it is any longer. We see uh, from the time Adam and Eve choose to sin that now our world has fallen away from what it was originally created to be. And you can see this uh, simply by looking at your children or grandchildren, or your brothers and sisters, 
to see this. I have a uh, beautiful little 16-month-old daughter, and she is great and beautiful and pretty, and we dress her up with bows and leopard print this and and pink and floral this, and and it's just great. It's it's fun. Like, I've had, we had boys for uh, 13 years, almost 14 years now, and now we've been introduced to this little girl, and it's like, everything's changed. Everything is now bright and colorful and flowers and all this. And, but you know what my 16-month-old little girl does when she's done eating at the dinner table? She does this really neat thing where she simply takes her plate and dumps it on the floor. When she's done with her drink, she tosses her cup aside. When she no longer wants to be in conversation with you, she strikes you in the face. When she doesn't want you to hold her anymore, she will scream in your face. When she uh, doesn't want a toy any longer, she tosses it aside. When a child has a toy that she wants, she will readily take it from them. She has entered into a phase of life in which, whether she is excited or mad, she has become a biter at 16 months old. We didn't teach her that. We didn't teach her any of those things. In fact, most of you would probably say that there has never been a time in your life when you had to teach your kids to be bad. I never sat down and taught my sons or my daughter, hey, this is how you do wrong. It's always been the other side of the argument. It's always been the other side of the aisle. We've had to come in and correct and say, no, no, we don't hit. No, no, we don't talk to people like that. No, no, we don't, we don't throw our food on the floor when we're done with it. We don't toss our cups aside. We treat our things kindly and nicely. It's always teaching what's right. It's never been about teaching what's wrong. We can see just by looking at children that something's wrong with our DNA. Something's wrong inside of man. And since we are all like this, since mankind is all like this, we make up society. So we, as a broken people, are part of society, functioning in society, and we, as broken people, make up the institutions that go on in our world and in our country, and our governments, our schools, our churches, All of these are places where we, broken people, find ourselves. And because we find ourselves in those places, those places also experience brokenness. And that's a bit of where Solomon is going to begin today as we jump into the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 8. So the big idea or that I want to kind of answer for us to have this tug of war this morning is, is how do we live and interact in a world where everything is tainted and eroded by sin, How do we function in society? How do we function in institutions every day when our DNA is bad, when our, our world is tainted by the fall of man? How do we do it? How do we live and breathe in the midst of this? And Solomon is here to interject, and he starts with the government. But honestly, you could, you could slide anything in here. He just slides in government, and he starts in verses 1 and 2. He says, "'Who is like the wise?' And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. So Solomon starts here in verse 1, and he gives us uh, a picture of what a heart that's been transformed looks like, what a life that's been transformed looks like. It says a man's wisdom. That's talking about our wisdom of God, our, our wisdom and knowledge of salvation, our knowledge that we need Christ to transform our life. And he says, a man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face 
is changed. This is something that only God can do in our life, that only Jesus can do in my life and your life, to change something that's hard and and unmovable into something soft and pliable and usable. He's saying our hearts are transformed and our lives are changed by Christ, and it's evident. It's able to be seen. The hardness of his face is changed. We've all seen this on somebody's face, right, where they were in a bad mood or going through a situation and maybe they heard a good word or maybe a note was delivered to them or whatever the case may be and you can see the hardness begin to melt away. We could begin to see their face change. Solomon here is saying that this is exactly what happens to the believer when we recognize our need for Christ and accept him, believe in him, put our faith and trust in him. And then Solomon goes on to verse 2 and he uses government. So he says, our hearts have been awakened to the reality of Christ. So now that that's happened, he says this, be careful who you submit to, is what he's saying here in verse 2. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. He's saying, be careful who you submit to. Now that your hearts have been awakened to the reality of Christ, be careful who you submit your life to. And as you and I live life on an everyday basis, there is an element of submission to every single one of our lives in almost every area of our life. If you are employed by someone, you have a boss, and there's an element of submission there. Let's say you own the company. There's still an element of submission to the laws that govern our country about how businesses should work and taxes you should pay. If you are married in the room today, there is an element of mutual submission from a husband to a wife and a wife to a husband. If you are a child here today, there is an element of submission to your parents. Even at the very, if you're like, oh, I'm none of those things. Even if you just simply have friendships with other people, there is an element of submission even in our friendships. You see, in our friendships, if I'm to submit to my friends, I'm letting them know me. I'm saying these are things you can know about me and I want to know the same things about you. So we can do life together. But there's, there's also kind of a, a danger in our mind that comes with that, right? If I'm known by people, if I submit to people, now I've given them a bit of control in my life. And that's something that yet you and I, maybe it's just me, that, that I cling tightly to is that control piece, right? I don't want to submit because if I, if I submit, then, then I'm not in control of the situations anymore. And Solomon is recognizing that And saying, be careful in this area of your life. He's saying, who you marry matters. Who you are friends with matters. Who you work for matters. So he's saying, pay attention to who you are giving influence to in your life. When I was a youth pastor years ago, uh, I had this fun little saying. It was probably legalistic, but I would say to students, uh, friendships determine destiny. And it was just a simple way for me to get across to students that, listen, who you associate with can oftentimes determine the path of life that you take. And Solomon is recognizing the same thing. He recognizes that when you and I submit to people and and places in our life, that we're giving influence over to those places and people in our life. And we need to be very careful as we do that. And here's why. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? 
So he's saying, be careful who you submit to, because once you submit to it, you are now part of it. And there may be things that are going on there that are out of your control. You may become guilty by association now. And if you aren't careful, you can find yourself wooed away from what is right and become part of something that God himself calls evil. So be careful in your submittance to things. Be careful in your submittance to people. Because once you submit to something, you are now part of it. Guilty by association. Just like the person who's driving a car with a friend in the vehicle who has some type of illegal substance or contraband on them, and they get pulled over and stopped, they are now guilty in the crime. They submitted to the person they put in the passenger seat, and now they themselves have been wrapped up in the act. They themselves are culpable for the thing going on. Solomon is saying, be careful to who you submit to, who you give power to, who you give influence to, because in the end, you might find yourself in a way of life that's not biblical or not right before God. So a helpful question that you and I might ask in the middle of that when we're submitting to something is, is this place or is this person something that I can submit my life to and have peace about? Is this place or is this person something or someone I could submit my life to and have peace about? Is what is going on here godly? Does it line up with the gospel? Students, young people in the room, this is a huge question to ask about your relationships. Just because that guy or that girl is smoking hot does not mean that that's a godly person or relationship to get into. And the same thing for us as adults as we're seeking out maybe a better job or somewhere to make another dollar or somewhere to advance our career a little bit. We need to also slow down and ask, this, is what's going on here godly and line up with the gospel? Because, just because you may be able to make another dollar there or advance your career there does not mean that it's a godly thing for you and I to do. Be careful who you submit to. The next part of the text, verses 5 through, five through 7, Solomon goes on. He says, Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it is to be? Listen, this is great poetry. This is good writing. This is something that you and I need to dig into. What Solomon is saying here is know who you are and know what Christ asks of you before you ever get put in a situation where you need to know. Let me say that again. Know who you are and know what Christ asks of you before you ever get put in a situation where you need to know. Does that make sense? So it's you and I doing the hard work of finding out what will I do, what will or won't I be involved in for the gospel's sake? What am I willing to do and not willing to do in my life? And then asking what does the gospel ask of your life? Well, not then asking, but then putting on top of that. What does the gospel ask of my life? It's knowing who you are before a situation ever comes up where you are questioned on who you are. It's knowing what the gospel requires of you before someone ever asks you what the gospel requires of you. 
What I'm saying here and what Solomon is saying here is that you and I must do the work of asking ourselves hard questions and doing the homework of finding out who we are now that we are believers. And the sad truth is that many of us never do this. And because we never do this, we get tossed to and fro by everything that comes into our life. Every new scheme, we get drawn off to it. Every new plan, we get pulled in that direction of it because we don't know who we are. And we don't know who the gospel or what the gospel has told us that we are and who we should be. You see, we must know who we are and what Jesus has asked of us. Know what the gospel means in your life so that as you walk through life, the right direction, the right time, the right thing will be known by us. The trouble is that this does take effort, and it does take time, and it does take humility. It takes a dedication, but the only way to know who you are before the alarm clock goes off in the morning is to do the hard work. You see, you and I can't decide halfway through our work day, like, oh, yeah, 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 I'm going to be this type of person. This is waking up in the morning knowing who you are and who the gospel compels you to be. Let me give you just a practical example of this from my own life. When I was a young man, I knew, I knew really nothing of myself as most young men and most women don't, and I knew very little of the gospel. I went to church uh, occasionally, uh, a little more often than Christmas and Easter, but just, just not enough to understand who God was and, and, and what he asked of me. There wasn't ever a time in my life that I didn't like, believe in God, but I, I had no idea what the gospel meant to my life and, and, and what Jesus meant and, and what Jesus had done for me. And As a 14-year-old boy, I went to a party with some friends out in the woods. And as a 14-year-old boy, I thought a party meant like birthday party, like cake, ice cream, roller skating. Like that's, that's what you do. So when I asked my mom if I could go to a party, that was both of our understandings, I guess, of what a party was. And she said yes, and, and I went. And I went with some friends. And, and we went out to this party, and it was a bonfire. And uh, as we pulled up to the party, we got out of the car, and my friend opened his trunk, and he pulled out a box, and I began to hear, hear kind of the clanging of, of bottles against each other. And as he opened the trunk, and I looked in that box as a 14-year-old boy, he said, Hey, Miller, are you drinking tonight? Not knowing who I was, not knowing anything of the gospel. I spent the next seven years of my life living for emptying cans and emptying bottles every chance I got. Because I had never done the hard work and nobody else had come alongside of me to help me do the hard work of knowing who I really was and knowing the power of the gospel over my life. And I'd be willing to bet as we, as we sit here today that there are many more of you in the room that have wasted more years of your life because of a refusal to answer those questions. Who am I because of the gospel? What has the gospel created me to do? We have to do the work of this. We must do the work of this. We have to slow down. We have to ask, what is required of me scripturally? What does it mean to be redeemed? What does it mean to be a believer in Jesus Christ? You can go further. What do it, does it mean to be a member of a church? But we have to stop and answer these questions first. Before we decide to move on to other things, before we decide to, to read into other things, we need to handle these questions first. 
Because the truth of verse 5 rings true over all of us. Listen to what Solomon says at the beginning of verse 5 again. Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. Solomon is saying, know the gospel and it will keep you from evil. Know the gospel and it will keep you from evil. Let's keep going. Verses 7 and 8 this morning. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. (laughs) What Solomon's doing here is, is actually really helpful to you and I. Because there's a way in which, as, as we read the gospel and as we hear sermons preached, that you and I can begin to believe that if we do A and B, that it will always equal C. Right? That, that, that the gospel becomes almost like a, a program that we, we add to our life and it makes things better. Right? A plus B equals C always. And Solomon's saying, no, 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 that's not the truth. That's not the truth. So he's saying, be careful who you submit to, know who you are before you get started, and now... Even though you do those two things, things will still go wrong. <laughs> Thanks, Solomon. <laughs> like, what a great word of encouragement. Even though you do those two things, things will still go wrong. He's saying, do all that I've said, but remember, you are in a war. Look at verse six, or excuse me, verse eight. There is no discharge from war. So Uh, Be careful who you submit to. Know who you are before you get started. But know that you are in a war, and oftentimes in war, there are casualties. We know this is true. In fact, today as we celebrate Memorial Day, men and women did everything that they were trained to do in combat. And some of them still did not return home. Solomon says here, no man has power over death. It comes for us all. But that is not an excuse not to train. He's actually pushing us further into training. Be diligent because you are in a battle. When you're in a battle, there are no days off. Like soldiers don't get to call in sick. Whatever's ailing them or whatever's bothering them, they have to go into battle again the next day. They can't phone it in. And for you and I as believers, as we're in this tug of war of life, we are in a battle every single day. We cannot phone it in. We cannot call it in. We cannot, uh, we cannot not train. We have to be about it. We have to be diligent because we're in a battle. This battle is not easy. This battle is not short. It is a battle that is worth training for as men and women of God. Solomon goes on here in verses 9 and 10, and he says, All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun. When men had power over man to his hurt, then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is also vanity." There's a warning here uh, about, about following a certain type of leadership. In fact, Solomon is really, 
you could take this a couple different ways, but, but me as being a preacher and Pastor Sam as being a preacher, there is a side of this where we as preachers and maybe those that, that have a calling on their life to preach watch other men uh, go into the pulpit or go into the places where they minister uh, and we see them do great things and we, we try to emulate them and be like them and we want to pray like them and talk like them and preach sermons like them. And, and Solomon is saying that though these men went into that holy place and they got praise, that is the most praise they will ever get. Solomon is saying here, don't be naive about your heroes. They are also sinful people. There, is, there, is, uh, there are plenty of men that are preaching a great word, and that's good, and we should listen to it, and we should follow it, but there should not be a point in, in which we are submitting to that person. I'm not, I'm not uh, listening to other people's sermons uh, because of how great they are. I'm listening to other people's sermons because of the message that God has given to them. I'm praising God for what he's doing through them. It would be naive for me to believe that that person has it all together. I read a book uh, a couple years back called The Imperfect Pastor. It was by a guy named Zach Eswine. And in the book, he was talking about meeting with some seminary students. And as he was meeting with these seminary students, they were talking about how great Charles Spurgeon was and his sermons and, and how great his writings were and all this. And, and in the middle of it, Zach Eswine just kind of interjected and said, you know, Charles Spurgeon passed gas. And he said the same thing kind of happened that everybody in the room was like, What? And what he was doing was just simply reminding these young men that Charles Spurgeon was, in fact, a human being and was fallible and at, at times had sin in his life. So it's not that he didn't write great sermons, and it's not that he didn't write great things for men to read, but it's not being naive and believing that this person is a model to follow. Jesus is our model to follow. God is our motto, model to follow. All of us do this. All of us have some type of leader that we look to, that we emulate, whether it's preachers or school teachers. I've been around a lot of uh, welders recently. Welders do this, which I was like, you do what? Like, but they have someone they look to, someone they emulate, someone they want to be like. CEOs do this. Grocery baggers do this. Truck drivers do this. But in the end, we must realize that all these leaders are sinful people. And they have within themselves the capacity to blow up their lives and yours as well if we submit our life to them rather than the one who's worthy of us submitting our life to. And there's a part of us, though, that wants to argue that. There's a part of us that doesn't believe that's true. And Solomon's going to address it here in the next uh, couple verses. Let's look at 11 through 14. He says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not, ex not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well for those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked 
And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And I say that this also is vanity. What Solomon is saying here is that there's a tendency for you and I to watch the lives of other people and again want to emulate them, want to be like them, want to follow their path of success, want to look at the plan that they followed and, and, and be that. We want the stuff they have. We want the lifestyle we ha- they have. We want the, the wife or the husband that they have, the well-behaved children that they have, the private school education that they have, the white picket fence, the, the nice cars, the nice clothes, the stuff. Whatever it is that we view as kind of the good life, we find someone who has it and we begin to emulate and we begin to watch, even if that person is a sinful person. And what Solomon is saying is we do that because we see them doing it and there's not harm coming to them. Do you see the truth in that? That there are people that are doing wicked things and they are actually prospering in their life. They have underhanded business practices, they've cooked their books, they've lied uh, to their spouse, they've done whatever they needed to do, and they are ahead and they uh, seemingly have not gotten busted for it. Solomon even addresses it. That's what verse 14 is all about. There is a vanity that takes place on earth Listen, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. So he's saying there are people who live good lives. There are people who chase after God with everything that they have and bad things happen to them. And then he goes on though and he says, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. He's saying there are bad people doing bad things and they are receiving gifts that the righteous people should receive. Listen, Solomon's letting us know that this is not fair. But in the middle of it, he encourages us. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. Solomon is saying, you can cut corners, you can sacrifice, you can practice sin to get ahead, you can follow what all those other people are doing, but at the end of the day, there comes a realization that you have submitted your life to the wrong authority if that's the path that you're going to follow. Solomon is saying the authority that you should submit your life to is God. He's saying full, whole life comes in submittance to God. Those who fear God, it will be well with those. You see, what happens is when those leaders in our life, those people that we have submitted to fail us or fail themselves or fail that company, we then realize that, that they have, we have been failed by what it was we submitted ourselves to, what we attached ourselves to. And then we have to dig deeper and realize that we were the ones who submitted to that person and therefore we have failed ourselves. And then we go all the way back to that tug of war at the beginning the external problem or the internal problem. See, I thought I could solve all my problems by doing the external things, right? Better education, better schools, better health care, better, better all of those things, and that will be the thing that makes me successful. Following this person will do it. But now I have to come to the realization that the problem is in me. It's my bad DNA. It's in me. And this is actually a good realization for you and I because look at where it takes us. Verse, let's finish out verses 15 through 17. And I commend joy 
For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day uh, excuse me, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out, even though a wise man claims to know he cannot find it out. The last two verses there, Solomon is saying, there is a mystery to the things that God is doing. There is a mystery in the fact that you and I don't know how all the events of our life are going to turn out. We don't know why God does all the things that he's doing. But Solomon goes back actually to verse 15 and says, well, actually you could go back to verse 14 where he talks about the, the uh, righteous receiving unrighteous things and the unrighteous receiving righteous things and pointing out that it's all vanity. Solomon is saying once you get to that point of recognizing that it's all that's vanity, what you're really recognizing is that I need a savior. It's not an external thing that's going to save me. I need a Savior. And once we recognize that and turn to that Savior in repentance, we experience the joy that God has given to us. So we've seen when we are careful who we submit to, when we know who we are and what the gospel asks of us, then Solomon simply says, repent, eat, and drink, and be joyful, and go to bed. Listen, when we've recognized that we, it's not something external that's going to save us. It's the person of Jesus Christ taking up residence inside of us. When we repent, when we turn to him, when we recognize that he is the giver of full life, not all this stuff we've been chasing after, we can eat and drink and be joyful and go to bed. In fact, Jesus himself told this to a group of people. Listen to this. This comes from John 10, 10. Through 18. Jesus says this. He says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. We saw Solomon talking about that very thing, right? Be careful who you submit to, because once you submit to something, you're giving influence to it, you're giving authority to it. And Solomon was saying, If it's outside of God, it will steal and kill and destroy you. But Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I'm going to read more, but... Do you hear the truth that he's saying there? Those that we've given influence to, those that we've given, that we've submitted to, are nothing more than a hired hand who's looking out for themselves. And when trouble comes to your life and to my life, they will flee and they will run because they were never worthy of us to submit to in the first place. They were looking out for themselves. He goes on I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for my sheep. And I have other sheep that are not in this, of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because, listen to this, I lay down my life that I may take it 
up again. Listen, that's Jesus saying, I'm submitting to only the Father, and I'm laying my life down at his feet. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus is showing us that he is, in fact, a good shepherd. And he's not swayed by the opinions. He's not swayed by the stuff of other people. Jesus' one mission was to come and be about the will of his Father and rescue and redeem his people. And we see Jesus perfectly submitted to the Father on our behalf. We couldn't do it, but Jesus stepped in our place and lived the perfect life you and I could not. And because of that, Jesus calls us to submit to him, to know his voice and what he requires. And when we do that, we can enjoy our life. That's really good news. We can invite friends over. We can have a barbecue. We can drink our favorite beverage. We, have, we can enjoy what God has given us because we have a good shepherd who's laid his life down in our place, perfectly submitted to the Father on our behalf, did what we could not do. While we were busy uh, submitting to other things and giving our heart away and following foolish men. Jesus had already come and died for us and lived a perfect life on our behalf so that we could experience eternity with him and enjoy our life. This morning, as we come to this table, we take the bread as a reminder that Jesus lived the life that we could not. He sacrificed his life, his flesh, in perfect submission to the Father on our behalf. And we take the cup and we are reminded that Jesus laid down his life and shed his blood so that we could be brought in to the family of God and enjoy our days under the sun so that our wisdom our knowledge of salvation makes our face shine and the hardness of our face is changed before those we live in relationship with. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we are thankful for the words of Solomon. Though sometimes we don't understand everything he has to say, though sometimes we have to dig a little bit deeper, we see that today that Solomon is calling us to recognize our need for a Savior, to look at the face of Jesus, to look at the work of Jesus and submit our life to it, to hand over our life in submission to him, the one who perfectly obeyed on our behalf, the one who had his body broken, who had his blood shed so that we could be brought in. Father, there are many of us here today that have refused to do the hard work of asking who the gospel is makes us. We've refused to ask what God requires of us. And God, I pray that today that as we are here that you would be the one that changes our hard heart into a soft heart that goes into the dark places of our life and asks who we really are. 
that we would do the work of confronting ourselves with the truth of the gospel and look at the areas of our life that don't line up with the gospel and do the work. May Jesus be more beautiful to us than any other thing, so much so that we could no longer continue to go on in some of the paths that some of us are on. That it would cause us maybe to rethink a relationship, to rethink a job, to rethink who we've submitted and who we've given authority in our life over to. But God, only you can do that work. Only your spirit dwelling in us can do that work. And I pray that today that you would do that for us, for your glory, for our joy. God, for the believer here today who's struggling, who's recognizing that they are, in fact, in the middle of a war and they're watching bad people all around them get good gifts and they are living a a moral, upright life, a life of righteousness, and they're not receiving any good gifts, God, would you reassure us that you are not absent, that you are present, that you are watching over us, that you are for your people, that it's better to live our life in, in a fear of God than it is to submit to a manly authority that is wicked. God, would you help us today strengthen our faith? I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.